What we want to do tonight is carry on in 1 Corinthians, and uh, we want to start from chapter 2. I've given you a, a handout that, that also begins from chapter 1. I didn't have this particular handout last week, but it gives you an overview of the book as a whole, and then it, it also takes some notes, um, some outlining notes through chapter 1, which I might just hit the high points of that. But I like the uh, division of divisions, disorders, and then difficulties in doctrine. Um, he's first of all answering a report. He's dealing with things that he's heard about the church, things that are going on, and then he answers their letter, their letter back to him, questions that they had raised, things that they want Paul to give them an answer about. Those are the difficulties, areas of having difficulty in doctrine or teaching. So divisions, disorders, and then doctrine. Now the first chapter pretty quickly, but first we should pause here and uh, just begin as we're getting into into the text itself and into God's Word. Let's just pause and ask the Lord to bless bless our time together. Tyler, would you lead us? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to come take this class and listen to the teaching that is praise that you will be with him and help us to understand the wisdom that you've uh, given him and just um, what you're saying to us through your Word tonight, Lord. Help to be on our heart this week and help to change our lives and help us to share this good news with others that we come to contact this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So in 1 Corinthians, he, he starts off, I'm, I'm not going to deal with some, some of the authorship stuff. Um, um, one thing I do want to point out is there's a couple of suggested key verses on the first page of those notes. One of them is chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That, that uniqueness of our calling, how we have been sanctified by the presence of God, uh, that's going to speak into some of these early issues of division because God has, God has made us new. It is the working of God's Spirit, not um, man's wisdom or miraculous signs that have caused people to believe that we don't follow an earthly wisdom, but we follow a wisdom from the Spirit. We'll talk more about that tonight in chapters 2 and 3. Uh, and that's going to continue on, and that's going to be a basis for how we conduct ourselves, how we, how we act. But I think an even more, perhaps a more, it's, it's a little more subtle, but I think um, a key verse to understand the book as a whole is, quite simply, chapter 2 and verse 2. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And Paul is applying that, I think, in this book into the Christian life. If that wasn't his intent in making that statement, if it's so subtle that Paul didn't actually intend it himself, I still think it captures what's happening in the book. The, the, um, the Corinthian church seems to be proud, and proud in human fleshly ways, natural ways, rather than... Um, making their boast in God by His Spirit, what God is doing. Uh, they, they seek to assert themselves, they, they want to advance themselves, they would put themselves first rather than following the pattern of Christ, of laying themselves down in sacrifice for others. We'll see that come up in chapter 4 if we get to chapter 4 tonight. And so... Um, I, I'll, I'll hold that out to you and we'll kind of test it week by week as we go. How does that measure in terms of a, of a lens by which to view the book as a whole? Christ and Him crucified. That He calls us to follow Him in a sacrificial life. 
He started out in chapter 1 saying good things about the church. Um, makes a very very positive statements. The things that he, he gives thanks for in, in chapter 1 verses 4 to 9. A lot of commendation there. That he says a lot. Now that, what's surprising about that is he doesn't always do that when he writes a letter to the church. He actually thought very well of the Philippian church and he doesn't spend a lot of time with that. He does thank, give thanks concerning them for specific things, but he does this in a church that he's actually going to have to do a lot of correction. And maybe we can learn something from that just in terms of relational ministry one to another. That if you're going to need to make some correction, uh, be sure that you also recognize in the person, not just sweet talk them first. You know, it's like, okay, praise, critique, and then praise. There's, this, there's that sandwich model that they... They teach you to use, and that's good supervisory uh, approach. But as well, if I'm going to be critical, it's good that I myself recognize the good that God is doing in this person. Otherwise, I can simply be too critical in a way that will not build up, but in a way that will actually tear down. Paul does that. We see him doing that. He gives thanks for God's work, sincerely gives thanks for God's work among them, and the fact that they do not lack anything. And then he, he, he confronts them, uh, he, he, he brings up the problem in uh, B on that first page of the outline. I'm on this page of the outline, if you want to know where I'm at, to follow along. Outline page, the first page of the outline, which would actually be page three of your notes. Everything else is just for you to, again, review at your leisure. You notice I don't call it homework. I just say you can review that on your own. But... Um, so in 1b there, the problem that emerges, and this is the first problem within, within the church, um, and that's the problem of church divisions. He's then going to get on to some issues of disorder in chapters 5 and 6, then he's going to get on to their difficulties, their questions. Um, the problem is that there are competing factions based on favorite teachers. And we talked a little bit about that so far. We're going to talk more about it tonight once we get to chapter 3, because he's going to circle back around that. But let me pause and just ask the question. Uh, in the first century, why is it a problem that some identify themselves with Paul, some with Peter, some with Apollos, and some with Christ? Why is that a problem? I mean, don't we have different denominations today? Well, one of the core things is unity. Okay. And so, if you're kind of aligning yourself mm -hmm. with one person, mm -hmm. that can tend to lead to disunity. Okay, and, okay, okay, so there is a unity within the church that ought to be, there should be an essential unity, and that can be threatened by these factions. Tyler? So, I mean, it seems like at this early stage of the church, you really want to identify Christ as what your church is all falling under, as recognizing Jesus as Okay, okay. You recognize Paul, I mean, maybe you mm -hmm. start to think Paul was yeah, and, G and, and Paul actually answers it, was, was, was um, um, were you baptized in the name of Peter or Paul? Was, was, um, was, was Paul crucified or Peter crucified for you? Was Paul, yeah, in verse 13. Was, was Paul crucified for you? And then he's actually glad he didn't baptize any of them, that they would have a reason by baptism to identify with him in particular. But, but if it should be Christ and not the others, then he also pokes at this Christ faction which that would surprise us. We would think, well, maybe they're especially proud because we follow Christ. 
rather than anybody else, or that would actually be the right thing if our unity is in Christ. But what if, and we're not sure exactly what these fashions look like, so it's okay that I say what if, but what makes sense to me is there might be some that say, well, you know, I really, I'm only, I'm only really interested in, in tell me about the words of Jesus. I am, Paul is just another teacher. We have teachers all over Corinth, or Peter, or Apollos, or whoever. I'm just interested in the words of Jesus from those who heard from Jesus. And there was, there was some sort of a, written, of, a, of a written record of the sayings of Jesus even before the, the four Gospels that we have were written. And there appears to be sources that they used. There were, there were things written down, Jesus said this and that. Uh, but that would then, I'm not interested in what Paul or Peter or the other apostles whom God has also raised up within the church and is going to use to actually give the scripture that we will still. What would we say today to somebody who only... I only read Paul's epistles. That's the only part of the Bible I read. And uh, people that turn to other places in Scripture rather than just Paul's letters, well, they're really off track. They're, they're, they're missing the main thing. Paul's the main thing. Somebody else would say, no, 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 it's not Paul. Paul didn't even know Jesus personally. It's Peter. Peter's the one that you need to just pay attention. It's easy. It's only two letters then. You don't have a lot of Bible to master then. You've only got First and Second Peter. That's all you need. Wouldn't that be easy? Or, we don't need any of those letters at all. We don't need Acts. All we need are the Gospels. Just let's focus on the Gospels only. Or if we as a church only taught the Gospels. That's it. Because those are the words of Jesus. Red letter Bibles, those are the ones for us. It's only the red letters that matter. Would that be okay? Yeah. Yeah, the Gospels are foundational. Acts is historically how the church is living in light of that foundation. And the epistles, the letters, are all corrective that then apply that foundation. Like in the Old Testament, the prophets apply Moses. In the New Testament, Paul is applying the Gospels, the, the teaching of Jesus, the life of Jesus, to our salvation day to day. And he particularly in a Greek world. And so God raised up these apostles also to edify the church. And so the church needs all of them. And so what they're in danger of doing is actually losing much of God's word to them. And that's not from either the words of Christ or Paul or Peter or Apollos. And Apollos didn't even make the final cut, you know, Bible-wise, so they would really miss out with Apollos. But you see the point. Uh, Apollos might equate for us today if we just listen to our preacher we don't read the Bible at all. That might be Apollos. And the preacher might have good things to say because he reads the Bible. But now you're only getting it secondhand. And you've cheated yourself out of much of God's Word. I think that's the danger. And so then you lose an essential unity, as, as Steve first talked about. Yeah? When I, I, when I ran into people who it's me and God against the world. Yeah. You know, well, God told me. So they, they don't listen to any kind of outside instruction. That's right. Come under any kind of uh, leadership. It's just 
Yeah. God talks to me. I've got the red phone. And yeah. <laughs> right. Right. You know, right. So that could be kind of the same. Kind of yeah. Yeah. There, there could be some of that that's going to pop in, certainly between the factions, as they as they line up with with who they're going to identify with, and that to me makes sense. And it's a little different. Now we can, we we be cautious with how we divide among among denominations. There is an essential unity in Christ that we share with people that we differ on certain points of how to worship in church, etc. I heard well, an interesting expression that the, the folks, some folks say just focus on the whole and not the don't. Oh, it's, it's kind <laughs> of uh, draws it all together, you know, all the different flavors and stuff that we find in the depths of the scriptures, and all we, we take away the dynamics and choose to live in a static Christian walk. And that, so we swim around in the whole. Uh-huh. But anyway, I just and so so the, the potential is to miss much and and have the church fragmented then, fragmented little. They have some of it and they have some of it, but nobody and and we need all of it. And so one of the things we try to do as a church is we try to not just limit ourselves. I love Paul's epistles. I could camp in Paul's epistles for years, but we need the whole counsel of God is often how we describe that. We need to to expose ourselves to all of Scripture. Okay. So that's an interesting aspect of that division that's going to come up. And then he talks about um, the difference between their desire for wisdom. First of all, they're going to evaluate speakers based on wisdom. And it's a, it's a human wisdom that is, first of all, evaluating the message and the ministers or the messengers incorrectly because of the, the standard that you're, they're using. Um, the power of the gospel is Christ crucified, not human wisdom, uh, point 1a under C. Uh, the power of the gospel is a foolish thing. It seems foolish to the wisdom of men. God's wisdom is foolishness to men. The foolishness of God is stronger than the wisdom of men. And uh, the two examples of how this, has, how this plays out, it's the gospel, not man's wisdom, that has changed the Corinthians' lives. In fact, the Corinthians don't, on the basis of wisdom, the Corinthians themselves would not be saved. And he says, look to yourselves, consider yourselves, in verse 26. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. Now, why does he go to wisdom and power? Well, Greeks seek wisdom, and the Jews demand signs or miracles. or They want to see power at work. And Paul says, that's not how God has saved you. God saved you who were not powerful and who were not wise, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, in order to bring to nothing the things that are, so that human beings might boast in the presence of... No human being will boast in the presence of God. It's because of Him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, our righteousness, our sanctification, the setting of us apart, our redemption. Let the one who boasts then boast in the Lord. If it's based on wisdom, they could boast in themselves. But he said, look to yourselves. There's not many among you who are the wise, the noble, the powerful. Let's be honest for a minute, he says. Take a look. Take a good look in the mirror for a minute. And that's the first attack against their argument. And then he gets into chapter 2. Um, new ground now. I came to you. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. 
I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Some want to suggest, though, he's referring there. He's come to Corinth from Athens. He has a bad experience in Athens. He doesn't get much of a response to the gospel. There's no record of a church being planted in Athens in the, in the book of Acts. He, he talks to people in the marketplace. He appears there, there before the council, the authorities on Mars Hill, and he makes his case there. And there are some actually very significant people, powerful people, who believe his message. They say, we would hear, we would hear more from you. We, we, we would hear from you again. So it's not that he has a terrible encounter at Athens. We just don't get the record of a church being planted and continuing. He moves on to Corinth. So some people would say, well, he determined, he he tried the wisdom thing. He tried to speak to the Athenians using their poets and uh, being relevant to them on their terms. You read that in Acts chapter 17, right? He uh, He quotes these current poets that the Athenians would know about. And uh, he uses their own kinds of arguments to present the gospel to them. And that he's decided he's not going to do that anymore. That that was speaking on human terms and he's not going to do that. Well, that's a possible answer. I don't think that's what he's saying here, though. Again, I think he's focusing on humility. I think he spoke very, with humility in Athens as well. And in Corinth, in a, a proud, where, uh, the proud city of the self-made man. Remember we talked about Corinth was a new city. It was new wealth. These were freedmen who didn't have a lot, but they were entrepreneurs and they made their own wealth. They didn't inherit it over generations. And they, they had pretty high opinions of themselves. They probably thought themselves wiser and smarter than they actually were because they were successful. Success is not always based on intelligence. It's, it's uh, well, uh, the, 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 there's nothing necessarily about intelligence for being financially successful or unsuccessful. Um, you, can, you can have money and be foolish with it, or you can be very wise, especially with a godly wisdom, and yet that doesn't gain you material wealth. So the two just don't correlate necessarily together. Um, but the Corinthians, because of their earthly success, they did have a high opinion of themselves, it seems. And that comes out. So Paul takes a very different tack. He came in weakness. He comes in fear and in much trembling. We're not sure exactly what that refers to as well. Um, perhaps Corinth was, was, was a very imposing place. Um, that he, he, he was afraid of his message and himself being rejected. Not, we're not sure exactly what that means. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might rest in the wisdom of men. Might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now the power here does most likely not refer to signs and wonders, that he did miracle and power among them so that they would believe him. One of the nearest arguments for that is, the, is that earlier he talks about the Jews seek a sign. He didn't give the Greeks wisdom. He didn't give the Jews sign. That was not his approach. He didn't seek to convince people. This, the, this power here, if you do a deeper dive into it, it seems to be the persuasive power of the Spirit. And that fits the overall thrust of the book as well, and especially the section. That it's God working by His Spirit that has made the difference. And so there's there's a persuasive power of His Spirit. I do have more on that um, that I could give you on, on on a side note. I don't want to spend all of our time on that one 
sort of problem verse, but that's the way I take it. I give you more on that why if you if you want to ask me afterwards, I can email something to you that would unpack that more fully. So, so what he's saying in the first, he's using himself as an example. The power of the gospel in Christ crucified is seen in, in Paul's own life and ministry also. So, so we see it in Paul's life, and then we're going to see it in his ministry among them to, uh, um, to the Corinthians as well in the following verses. He says, though I didn't come in human wisdom, I didn't come in, and, I mean, and when you hear wisdom, also think about oratorical skill. The skill to be an a effective and captivating speaker. This was very, very valuable. It was, the, um, it was the main entertainment in the Greek world. People would come to the public square, and there they would listen to people speaking. Well, think of it. They didn't have radio. They didn't have TV. They didn't have phonographs. They had no uh, form of media like that that they could entertain themselves with. So they would go and either see a full production that would be at the theater. They would go to musical productions. That was big entertainment. They, they, they had a, a smaller theater in each town, which was kind of like for the fine arts, for music. Then they'd have the big theater that might fit 25, 30,000 people in a large city. And that would be for big sporting events, gladiator games, things like that. Uh, those were big entertainment, but also the average daily entertainment, not going to the theater with, with box seats, the, the day's entertainment would be to go and listen to somebody good. Somebody who could weave a story. Somebody who could tug at your heartstrings, grab hold of your emotions, toy with them a little bit, and then pull you along in the direction that they wanted to bring you. And that was entertainment. That was admired, that was appreciated, that was applauded. People would throw tips into the cup for a good speaker publicly. Paul said, I didn't come that way. So when we're hearing this word wisdom, not just that he didn't come with a, a Greek line of argument, but it's the whole rhetorical skill that was admired and celebrated. That doesn't mean he didn't come without any wisdom. Verse 6, among the mature or among the, some, some, some Bibles will translate that among believers, the word, has to, the word is a word that's commonly used in the New Testament for mature or, ha, or to reach the intended end. Uh, but it was also used in the Greek world as those who were insiders, those who were part of a particular religion, those who were initiated. So to those who belong to the church, you could read it that way as well. Um, but he's, he, he might be speaking to a maturity, a spiritual maturity here. Among the mature, or at least among believers, we do impart a wisdom, but it's not the wisdom of this age. It's not the wisdom of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. God's wisdom doesn't. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom. Now, what, what do you know about that hidden wisdom phrase? Does that ring any bells for you? A hidden wisdom. A secret wisdom. A wisdom that only a few people know. There's an organization today that has that. It's called the Masons, right? They have their, their secrets that only the initiated, only those who are in the group know. Okay? Well, in the Greek mystery religions, they had secrets inside there that only those who were in could know them. 
And he's using their language. Now what's surprising here is, is, is Paul is saying he doesn't depend on the wisdom of rhetoric. And yet, Paul is very intentionally rhetorical. He's very careful with what he's doing and how he's pushing buttons, uh, using terminology that's going to get him inside their heads. So he's not being careless and just not giving any thought to how he communicates to them. He's, he's masterfully rhetorical here, and yet he's saying, that's not the thing. If the Spirit doesn't do it, it's, it, nothing happens. Now that was good for me to see years ago, when I realized that it didn't matter, it didn't only matter what I had to say from God's Word, but it also mattered how I said it. Um, I heard... I heard Chuck Swindoll talk about a, a, a pulpit sign. Sometimes the church pulpit will have this little sign that only the preacher sees. And this one sign that he remembered said, what in the world are you doing to these poor people? <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good sign for a preacher to remember. That, that take care in how you say what you say that, that will help them to hear. But um, So Paul's doing that here. That the prophets in the Old Testament did that. Paul's doing that here. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You can trace that word glory, but that's a word, you know, that exaltation, that's a word that kind of rings some bells in Corinth. They're, they're seeking glory. They're seeking honor. They're seeking prestige. And there's a wisdom from God. That God would lift us for our glory, but it's not a kind of wisdom that the rulers of this age recognize. Why? Because they crucified, they rejected the epitome of God's wisdom, who is Jesus. Jesus is the manifestation of the wisdom of God in personal human form, and they rejected it. So don't be surprised that God's wisdom is different from the way of the world. Now what is that? What takeaway would you have from that? Yeah, Peter. So it reminds me of Matthew 11, 25, right, where Jesus says that, uh, thank you for hiding these things from the wise and intelligent. Yeah. Even that wisdom to the babes. Yes, yes, and you've given them to the simple. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's what that's that's what Paul says he's done here. Yeah, even among even among them, that um, yeah, Steve. It also talks about hiding God's word in your heart. You might not sin. Well, it's so then it's versus God's word versus a man's opinion. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Talked about things yeah. that are hidden. Yeah, that's God's word. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And God's wisdom, God's truth, might be contrary to the wisdom of the day. In fact, it often will be. I remember, I remember um, a saying I wrote down some time years ago, the crowd is wrong. And that's just good to remember. The crowd's wrong. Don't follow the crowd. The crowd doesn't know where they're going. The crowd is headed off a cliff. And their way is often contrary. Now, just, just make sure that you're not just being contrary. You, know, you could just be contrary. We don't need to be difficult with people. We should give intention to, how could I communicate to my friend? Paul does that here. But 
it, this is not the wisdom of the world, so, so expect some pushback. Expect it to differ. Um, in fact, if, if, if you're going along, you don't see, oh, no, 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 I, I understand the Bible, it just makes good sense in the world. Hmm, maybe there's a part of it that you're missing. Probably the sacrifice part. Yeah, Tyler. Um, uh, you might have gone over this last week, I guess, but um, I guess, and you said in the beginning where it says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and then it says, Crucified, Lord, Lord. Why does he keep, um, why is this kind of a big argument or emphasis given on crucified instead of like resurrection, like Jesus rising from yeah, the dead? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was the stumbling block for the Greeks. And one of the things I think he's, dragging, he's, he's bringing out here is, is that God's wisdom is in a crucified Savior rather than in an exalted. Now, yes, he, he, he's crucified. He, he, he's raised from the dead. He ascends into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God. But God's salvation is purchased by our Savior dying for us. Uh, it, it is, is God's, God's power is exemplified in weakness. That's the whole contrary to the way of this world. What seems foolish is actually God's wisdom. And what seems weakness is actually the greatest power, the power to save anyone and everyone who will believe. And the only way that they could have been saved. And so there's that contrary to the world that he's doing, and he's also playing on that Greek mindset that wants glory and power, and the weakness of the flesh was something to be despised. You didn't glory in your weaknesses, and yet Paul's able to do that, and it's in one of the, one of the letters to the Corinthians that he says, I glory in my weakness and in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may be manifest in my body. So he's like, okay, weakness, okay, bring it on. Because God's going to be seen there. So the Corinthians did know that Jesus was risen from the dead, didn't you? Oh yeah, yeah. In fact, that's going to come up. That's going to come up. They, they also, actually, there was some who denied the resurrection. So he starts with the crucifixion, but he's going to end on the resurrection for sure. Yeah, he's going to correct them on that as well. That's the big doctrinal issue in the book in chapter 15. Okay, so then, as we're moving on here... Um, there, there, is a, there is a wisdom. The rulers didn't recognize it. Um, um, he, he, he quotes then, What I, no eye has seen nor ear hear, the heart of man imagine, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things that we would not imagine. That's what he's grabbing out of that verse. Things that we ourselves would not know, we wouldn't even think of, God has shown us through the Spirit. It's the Spirit who can show these things. The things that we know from God concerning His wisdom are things that God has to show to us. They are contrary to the world and they have to be revealed by God. Verses 6 to 10. And that's what he's saying here. These are things that we couldn't know. God has to reveal them to Him, to us. And it's God who reveals them by His Spirit because... Only no man knows what somebody else is thinking. Only that person knows what he's thinking. No man knows the thoughts of God but God himself. And so only God by his spirit can reveal his thoughts. This, this guy down here sitting on a podium, he doesn't know God's thoughts. He may seem a wise orator and a delightful speaker, but he doesn't know God's thoughts because he's not God. Whereas believers have the Spirit of God. We can know the thoughts of God. We can have the mind of Christ. But if we have the mind of Christ, how is it going to be evident? What kind of attitude would the mind of Christ be demonstrated by in our lives? 
What would that look like? Sacrifice. It would look like sacrifice. There's that key verse 2-2 again. And Paul, when Paul says to know among you, he doesn't just mean that that's the message he preached. That's the way that he lived. That's the way that he served them. And they, some of them, tended then to look down on him for it. Because a true good orator would not allow himself to be disrespected. He would claim the honor that is rightfully his. And Paul humbled himself. And uh, that was different. It should be different. We have a wisdom that comes from God. It's a completely different source. Who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person? So who knows, the, who knows God's thoughts except the spirit of God? Verse 11. And we've not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we can understand these things God has given. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom. So again, he keeps coming back to this human wisdom or God's wisdom. That's his point in chapter 2, that, that God's wisdom is not going to be known by human means or methods. It's going to be known by the Spirit of God revealing it. And the Spirit of God revealing it, how has the Spirit of God revealed his word to humanity? How has he done that in this age of the Corinthians? What's a very important way that the Corinthians and we today would know the mind of God through the Spirit? A central way. A main way. You want to know what God says and thinks. Where would you go? You'd go right here. Absolutely. It wasn't a trick question. And we're looking like, I don't know. It's a trick question. No. It's, it's, it's right there. And how did God give us this book? Men wrote as they were born along by the Holy Spirit, inspired by God. God's Spirit gave us these words. And He gave them through Jesus' own ministry, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And we have those words of red in the Gospel. He, 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 he spoke through Paul. Peter even calls Paul's writings Scripture. In Second Peter, I think it is. And, and um, he, he speaks through Peter. He speaks through James. So again, now we, now we take this, this reality. We carry that back to chapter 1. If you leave aside Peter and Paul, you're losing some of the Spirit's revelation of God's wisdom to you. That's, the, the, uh, that's part of the point here. Okay. Yes? John 16, 13 is a really phenomenal verse. But, uh, so it says... John 16, 13. telling the disciples themselves, they're not even going to remember. They're not smart enough to remember all this. The Spirit is going to remind them. The Spirit is going to tell, tell them more. The Spirit is going to reveal these things to them. And, and through them, the Spirit's going to give it to us. Okay. And yet even to understand the Bible, 
these things, we're going to get into that in just, in just a couple of verses here. We impart this wisdom, in verse 13, in words that are not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit. They are folly or foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they are discerned by the Spirit. You have hidden these things from the wise, and you have revealed them to the simple. So one of the reasons we want to talk to somebody for God, we're going to give thought. How could I speak to them? What are their objections? What answers do they need? But at the same time, before I talk to people for God, I've got to talk to God for people. I have got to, I need to ask the Spirit to open their eyes. Even as when I'm going to open the Word, I need to say, Lord, show me what I need to see here. Show me. Open my eyes, the psalmist says, that I might behold wondrous things from your Word. There's wondrous stuff here, but, but I won't see it in my natural self. I need the Spirit to open my eyes. These things are spiritually discerned. He's, he's reminding the Corinthians who are proud. They are entrepreneurs. The, Corinth is a wealthy city of self-made men. And, and he's trying to remind them that spiritually they are desperately dependent on God and His Spirit. They have nothing, and yet in God they have everything. They have nothing spiritually themselves. He's going to tell them more time. What do you have that you did not receive? That God has given you all things. And so he's working at making them very spiritually dependent. Um, it was said a while ago, somebody posed the question, I forget who, but if the Holy Spirit were to leave earth, how long would it take for the evangelical church to notice? It's an interesting question. We have got ourselves so organized. We've got our plans. We've got our strategies. We've got our ministries. And we will just keep rolling. How long would it take us to realize, huh, nothing's happening here anymore? <laughs> well, there's things happening. I mean, we're organized and people are coming. We're attracting people. But is there any spiritual fruit actually being born? And that comes by the Spirit. So... The spiritually discerned, spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. That's a tough verse. Who has understand the mind of the Lord, so as instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. What's Paul getting at there, do you think? Especially in the context here. Okay, but he hasn't been talking a lot about that here. So in the, in the immediate context, he's got this, he's, he's defending his message, dependent on the Spirit, as contrasted to this wisdom that the Corinthians are inclined to prefer, this wisdom methodology, this Greek oratorical skill. And so... They're sitting there in the public square and they're judging speakers. They've got scorecards. You know, they're holding them up. 8.5, ah, 6.8, 4.3, you know. And uh, Paul says, no, no, no. You know, yes, you're, you're, you're preferring and you're, and, you're, and you're choosing, but uh, 
Actually, that's not their role. God has chosen, God is using, God has made Paul and Apollos his fellow workmen, he's going to say in the next chapter, and they understand the things that the Spirit has given them to teach and to write, to tell, but they're not judged by, on, by humans on human terms. That doesn't mean that they aren't going to be judged, they're not accountable. He's going to get to that in chapter 4. He's going to say, you know, I don't even judge myself, but it is the Lord who judges me. He doesn't know of any fault within himself, but he's not cleared by that. He could just be blind to his, his own fault. The one who judges him is the Lord. So he's not saying he's not ever to be judged at all, but I think then in the context, the point might be that the spiritual person is able to discern, is able to evaluate things, but the spiritual person is not in turn judged, at least not rightly judged, understood, understood especially by those who are not spiritual. They think you're nuts. They think you're foolish for the choices that you're making, the sacrificial way that you're, you're, you're wasting your life, it seems. And uh, yet, yeah, not on God's terms. It's not a waste at all. There's nothing that matters more. So, who understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? You see, the Corinthians, and not merely the Corinthians, he's going to talk about from what, what angle they're coming from. But the Corinthians, from a worldly, material, fleshly perspective, they would judge Paul, they would try to reshape Paul, they would mold him more, they would give him advice to be different in ways that would actually be foolish. They would instruct Paul, who is actually their instructor. The children are telling the father all that is wrong with him. Oh, you've heard that script before, haven't you? If you've been a parent, <laughs> sometime or another, the kids, they know what's wrong with mom and dad. And, but, but, the, but the relationship, and he, and he expands that here in verse 16, who has understood the mind of the Lord to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That mind of Christ, that goes back to, I think, his opening in the, in the chapter, ver, chapter 2, verse 2. Nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He says in Philippians, chapter 2, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled Himself, who became obedient unto death. What seems foolish... But it's that mind of Christ that is going to ultimately win the day and turn the world upside down in the first century. Uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. Because because who has the mind of Christ but the Spirit? Yeah, the mind of God. Exactly. Romans uh, Romans eight nine says that, uh, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong. Yeah, so every believer does, is indwelt by the Spirit. And yet, we can be indwelled by the Spirit and yet not filled by the Spirit. Yet not walking by the Spirit. If you live by the Spirit, Paul tells the Galatians, let us also walk in the Spirit. Not according to our fleshly humanity. Not by merely human. Let's see this contrast in chapter 3 because he really bears this out now. Okay, chapter 3. Let me find this again in the outline here because I've gone on on my own, leaving my outline behind. We are now on the last page under number 2 where it says messengers. 
So there are misunderstandings, their misunderstandings concerning the gospel message and its messengers. So we've talked about the message, foolishness versus human wisdom. And now he's going to talk about the messengers more themselves. Laying the groundwork first concerning the message, because what's true about the message, which is God's message, then ought to be reflected in the messengers. So he's going from a, a stronger to a weaker, a greater to a lesser. This is clearly true about God's message. Now then, let's apply that to God's messengers and how you evaluate God's messengers. Let's evaluate God's messengers the same way that we evaluate God's message. Rightly, we do that spiritually because God's message doesn't make sense to the world. So we can't evaluate it on human terms. Neither then do we rightly evaluate God's messengers or God's servants on human terms. Okay, that's, that's getting us into chapter 3. I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Now there's going to be some, um, a whole series of, of um, contrast here. In, in, in 2.14, we had the natural person. Who does the natural person describe? Who is the natural person? Unsaved. Unsaved persons who cannot understand the things of God. They do not accept the things of the Spirit. They are f folly or foolishness. They are not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. And the natural person does not have the Spirit. So this is natural humanity, natural fallen humanity. Uh, contrast that with 2.15, we have the spiritual. Who is the spiritual person? The spiritual person is one who has the Spirit, thus who has been born again, who can then understand the mind of Christ, who can understand spiritual things. So we have natural and spiritual. Okay, now, but I, brothers, or brothers and sisters, who is he talking to, believers or unbelievers? Believers. Believers. So are they natural or are they spiritual? They should be spiritual, okay? But I could not address you as spiritual. Well, that's a problem. You are spiritual, but I couldn't address you as spiritual. But as people of the flesh, as infants. Now, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a play in Greek words going on here, although I, though I said that we were going to stick with English Bible and not delve into the Greek, Greek too much. But he's using a different word for, for um, 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 the people of flesh or natural people and spiritual people. Um, he's saying that, a, a, a way to think about it, he's not saying that they are in flesh, he's saying that they are fleshly. They're acting fleshly. Uh, it's an adjective to describe them instead. As people of flesh, as infants in Christ, now, infants in Christ clarifies it. He's not saying because you're not getting it, you must not be saved. He's saying because you're not getting it, you're missing so much of it, you're still infants, you're babes in Christ. But you're in Christ. You're just immature. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you're not ready. And even now you're not ready, you, for you are still fleshly. You're still characterized by flesh. Where there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? 
or some versions say behaving as merely human. I love that translation just because it so makes the point. We are not merely human any longer. We are spiritually spiritual people. We're to live as spiritual people. We are to understand spiritual things. We're not supposed to be satisfied being infants who need to be fed milk, who need to be cared for, and who scream and demand for what we want. What characterizes four stages of human development? This is kind of fun. In in um, in um, First John, you have you have um, you have uh, babes, or you, you, you or rather you have children, you have young men, you have fathers for sure. You clearly have those three. You might have four distinctions. You clearly have at least three. Um, if you have babes, and then you have children and young men and father, what what characterizes babies first of all? What kind of things do babies talk about? Okay, they want, they want, I have an appetite and I want you to meet it. They demand. Are they demanding that dad goes and takes care of mom? No, they're demanding that you or you and everybody within earshot take care of me. Babies are very selfish. Have you noticed that? Babies are very selfish. That's just by nature. They, they are. They can't. They, they are very needy, but they are immature. They are very selfish. Okay? What characterizes somebody who's growing up, who's becoming a little more mature? Okay? Being at least a little more aware of others, first of all. So children even, as compared to babies, babies are not aware at all of the needs of others. Children are aware of the needs of others. Sometimes they still want their stuff instead, but they are aware of the needs of others around them. And then somebody growing toward maturity, what does that look like? What do you hear them talk about? What characterizes their speech? Maybe a young adult. Okay, you hear them talking a lot more in that direction. And certainly, a stage of parenthood, you have a, a lot more of your concern, a lot more of your speech and planning is concerning the needs of others. Now, there, there's plenty of immature adults going around. But one of the ways that you can evaluate maturity is, is the person spend more of their time talking about themselves and their own wants and desires or are they are they more interested in others and seeking what is good for others and that's a normal human development babies they need you to take care of them parents on the other hand fathers maturity are taking care of children and young adults and especially babies so that's how it works so here they have, they are demanding, there's jealousy and strife among you, you're behaving as merely human. One says, now he comes back to it, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? Are you not being mere men? Not to be confused with mere maids, by the way. Are you not being mere men? And we are more than that is the point. We should be. So then he compares Apollos and Paul. Who are we? We are, and he's using just Apollos and Paul here as examples. He would include Peter here and anybody else, but he just grabs hold of he and Apollos. 
Uh, um, who are we? I planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one who gave the increase. The spiritual growth, and this is healthy for us to, who want to be in ministry to others, this is healthy for us to remember. God uses us. We are partners with him in his work. He, he brings us in and he lets us help. But if there's anything to be accomplished, God is the one who does it. He lets us water. He lets us put the seeds in the ground. But he is the one who through his life brings about the growth. That's important to remember. It's a, keep that in mind. Um, when, when great things are going on, it's not because of you. God gave the increase, verse 6. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, could you take that verse wrong? Neither him who plants or him who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants, the one who waters, doesn't matter at all. It's God who gives the growth. Could you take that too far? That's right. I remember the the, um, the 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 story of the old farmer. The um, he's 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 working his field one day, and the preacher comes on by and stops along the fence to talk to him and chat a bit. And he said, "Boy, this is sure a, sure a nice a nice farm that the Lord has blessed you with that the Lord gave you." He said, uh, "Yeah, yeah, it's pretty nice here what the Lord's given me, but I tell you what." You should have seen it when he had it to himself. <laughs> there's cultivating, there's plowing, there's planting, there's, there's harvesting that's got to be done. You don't pull the weeds, they're going to take over. And so it's not that, that, that um, what you do doesn't matter. Don't read it that way. Don't, don't use this verse as your license to shrug and say, Ah, oh, God will do whatever he's going to do. doesn't need me. No, he invites us in. Well, let's toy with that idea for a minute then, just laying it out there. Why does God invite us in then? If, if he's the one that makes it happen, if God's the one who gives the growth, then why does he have us along? Why does he say that we are, we are um, God's fellow workers? Why does God have us as fellow workers? Uh -huh. You know, I, I, I like to work with cars, and so I have all kinds of tools. Well, sure. I'm done. Done. Okay. Well, that'll work for now.